Your time has come. Sounds right. And so have I. <laughs> that sounds right. Yeah. It's excellent. I've been sick for the past like week and a half. That sucks. Yeah, I've been dying. Uh, I got like a, some kind of infection. I went to the emer- not the emergency, the urgent care. Okay. And the nurse practitioner was like, your ear looks infected. Do you have an ear infection? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't feel one. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. You're a doctor. Shouldn't you tell yeah, me? Yeah, I was like, I feel like you should be telling me. But uh, <laughs> I got what I came for, which was like steroids and antibiotics. But Excellent. Yeah. Uh, the weather did it to me. I don't care for it. Mother Nature's a harsh bitch. She's a harsh mistress, and I need to move somewhere drier. It doesn't, <laughs> like, fill me up with goo every couple of months to debilitate yeah. me. A large part of that is because I insist on uh, smoking out of a bucket of stagnant water. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, it <laughs> doesn't help. No, it definitely doesn't help uh, my lungs. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm just inhaling that stagnant tar um <laughs> the good stuff yeah yes the it's a deep brew with which i see the future <laughs> <laughs> um but i do pay a price <laughs> yes and that you're filled with infections yeah not all the time but you know every now and then <laughs> uh perhaps more than average i'm not sure maybe i will die Perhaps. Maybe I won't. But the important thing is I didn't die before this episode, which is episode number 50. Yes, episode 50 of the Raincoat Report. Episode 2 of the Rainbow Report. Yes, so welcome to the Rainbow Report. This is Boss here with Jeremy. Yes, and Boss, I'm going to get in here for a second. I got okay. a little something for you, because we've been doing this for so long. Ooh. It's like a little uh, anniversary of a podcast, you know? It's a little birth of a nation. <laughs> Wait, no? Oh, wow. I wish I wish everybody could see this. I was going to say, if you want to pause for a second, if you don't want to reveal your face, we can uh, get a little picture of it. Yeah. Okay. We'll, we'll have to censor it for Instagram. Hold it up in front of your face. Hide yourself behind the filth. <laughs> so uh yeah you guys can check that out on our uh, social media yeah it'll show up uh, if you want the uncensored version of it uh instagram if you want to see the normal version of it it's deeply wrapped it is deeply wrapped and it's it's beautiful wrapping i have to say yes uh, uh if you don't see it uh it's just various pages from uh pornography magazines that i had in the basement uh and and i love it it's yeah it's its own Pornography is its own reward, is uh, what they say. I'm like a grandma right now because I'm trying to, to very, unwrap it. You want to reuse that paper for later for whatever? Yeah, you say I that for my, a special occasion. When I get my mom a Christmas present, I'll wrap it up with this. I think that's great. Oh shit! I was gonna save it for like uh, episode 52, but it came in, and I can't delay gratification very long. It's understandable. You try to sit there and edge for a while, and you just... Yeah. I had it for, like, a week, and I was like, uh, uh, I don't want it to be destroyed in my home. Um, So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Pure Filth, uh, Jamie Gillis and Peter Sotos. uh Uh-huh. 
This looks amazing. Yeah. Uh, what that basically is, is uh, Jamie Gillis, our uh, favorite, and Peter Sotos, the uh, madman pornographer behind the band White House and a bunch of other weird, creepy shit. Uh, got together and collaborated on putting out a book of basically transcripts of uh, On the Prowl. <laughs> this is excellent. Yeah. Um, each one has a little introduction by uh, Jamie himself to kind of get you inside his head. So it's kind of an artist's look at uh, his own craft. Oh, which yeah. I feel like at about a year in, we're uh, able to really appreciate that now. For sure. There are some truly disturbing things in there from what I read. Well, I see one of the chapter titles is Walking Toilet Bowl 2, so I'm pretty excited about that. Yes, uh, man, the things he said Harry Reams did are almost blasphemy, because he's got such a clean-cut image, I can't imagine <laughs> these things happening, but uh, it's almost a blasphemy against the teacher, but, you know, every uh, every god has his shadow self, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, you know, all the the apostles have uh, different stories about Jesus, and yeah. this is kind of like that. I mean, Jamie Gillis knows Harry Reams better than we ever did. Yeah, that's true. So this is like... Uh, the gospel according to Jamie. Yeah, it's the best one. The <laughs> testament of our Lord. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Jeremy. This is the best gift I've ever received, probably. It's a, yes, you're very welcome. I'm a, a connoisseur. I like the pictures of this naked guy out in the snow. Yeah, he... Hanging around a tree. He froze to death. <laughs> they said that on the next page. <laughs> Roger Richardson. You Rrr. may hear the snowman long before you see him. The 36-year-old Poway, California resident does voiceover work for public service announcements, radio ads, and corporate videos. When he's not burning up the radio waves, you can find him jet skiing, running, dog training, or bicycling. What's he training the dogs to do? Just be good? Uh, I guess. I don't know. He's training them to be evil, like in uh, Play Dead. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to train a dog to poison um, a police detective. (laughs) Oh, Uh, well, uh, yeah, 50 episodes of the Raincoat Report. We're still doing it somehow. Yeah, it's still going on. Neither of us died during the pandemic. Yeah. I almost died in the past week, but that seems to be unrelated. <laughs> I, would, I would just, uh, it would just be another statistic. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't be on those totals. They don't even show those on TV anymore, I don't think. Uh, they they do. I saw uh, them on the news this week, but like. I saw CNN's doing like guns, gun deaths now. Oh, yeah. I feel like that's going to get real depressing for people real quick. Well, it's been, it seems like it's been ramping up recently. Yeah, it's. The world's opening back up. <laughs> yeah. America's open again. Come fucking shoot up them all. Jeez. Okay. Uh, um, I would rather talk about pure filth. The things in there are less depressing. <laughs> I'm excited about this. Yeah, uh, it's going to be... Uh, I'm excited for you to uh, get your report on it. Yeah, we'll we'll have to cover some on the prowl sometime soon. Yeah, and we I'm can not re- sure there's a whole lot of narrative to cover, but I feel like there's probably a lot of things happening to cover. Yeah, so we can we can do live readings. Oh yeah, you can be Jamie. I'll be uh, whoever. I think it's Eve, uh, Eve on the, on the cover. Yeah, I'll be Eve. There's other people in there, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating document of a <laughs> terrifying place and time uh 
So, speaking of terrifying places and time, yeah, yeah. Uh, this week we have a very interesting story to talk about in a film that is also uh, certainly noteworthy. I feel like the story behind it might be more interesting than the, the film itself in some ways, at least. Yeah. But uh, this week we're talking about Centurions of Rome from 1981, mm-hmm. directed by John Christopher. Yes. It is uh, noteworthy that uh, in the title, Centurions is misspelled. That is very noteworthy. Uh, that was a uh, snafu on the part of Hand in Hand Pictures, who released it. Oh, yeah. Well, can't get them all right. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, but there's there's a lot to talk about with this film beyond what happens on the screen itself. Um, Centurions of Rome is noteworthy, and at least at the time, it was the highest budgeted gay hardcore film uh, ever made at that point. Yes. And the financing came from George Bosk, mm-hmm. who... Uh, Stole almost $2 million from uh, the yeah. Brink security job he was doing. Yeah, $1.85 million, which I think about 180000 or so went to this film. Uh, yeah, something like something that. Something like that. So pretty big budget. That's around like, uh, that's more than uh, Driller had. Yeah, So yeah. I think they had bragged about like having like a $100,000 budget. Yeah, so, yeah. So, you know, and that was a, I guess, big at the time. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. Well, Boys in the Sand was 5000 so yeah. it's uh, certainly an escalation from last week. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it's our first gay blockbuster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the jaws of homo-masculine Rome fantasies. It's the Star Wars of oh, yes, homo-masculine... Rome fantasies. Yes. Yes. Uh, excellent. Uh-huh. Uh, in more ways than one. Yeah. What a fun film. Uh, yes. Yeah, so... Let's talk a little bit about the uh, film's financier. Yeah. George Bosk was a Latin American gentleman born in Miami. Yes. Uh, he grew up and uh, was known as being quite conservative at growing up. He was big into law and order, and he had a dream of becoming a police officer. Okay. Or That's... a uh, soldier in the military. Yeah. Uh, he was known, especially in his teenage years, for writing editorials about how the police should be given more power and they should stop uh, curtailing to the criminals on the street with guns. And uh, he also wrote something in a, in a school publication about how he was upset that he couldn't go to the theater without seeing a bunch of homosexuality on the screen. And... Uh, <laughs> He, uh, he had quite a set of uh, beliefs, but yeah. uh, that definitely starts to fall apart when you later realize that he himself was a homosexual. Yeah, some, uh, some, uh, it seems like some obvious like repression yeah. kind of projection. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know. But he was definitely serious about his desire to become a police officer. Sure. Yeah, um, you can, those two things can coexist. I uh, listened to, it was actually at the time of this recording, the most recent episode of the Rialto Report mm-hmm. was about Centurions of Rome. Okay. And we won't retread all of it, but it's a fascinating listen because right. uh, the story behind this is pretty wild. Yeah. But to give the kind of cliff notes version of it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. george after graduating high school went to the police academy uh, on good recommendations from his high school teachers but uh, he ultimately did not get a job on the police force so from there he went on to attend a military academy 
and he also did not get a position in the military. So he did some odd jobs doing things like uh, working dispatch for the police. He mm-hmm. uh, in San Francisco. Once he moved to San Francisco, he did some work for like some uh, private police. Sure, stuff. yeah, like some Pinkerton type deal like right. kinda, yeah yeah like private security sort of yeah it was something where the police department had to okay people to be part of it but mm-hmm. uh they weren't actually part of the police force but right he did have a gun and a badge and stuff so yeah. he felt pretty good about that the, but it seems yeah those types if they can't be police tend to gravitate towards like any other job where they can be given like some authority right right yeah but at the time, he also ended up taking a job working for Brink Security. Mm-hmm. Around this time, the his long-term boyfriend had broken up with him, and uh, he was taking that really hard. So one day, he was out on a run, uh, moving some money, mm-hmm. and uh, his partner went to go check on something, and he just took off with the money. Yeah. So uh, he went to, uh, it was a hotel or a motel. Yeah, he went to a hotel and uh, grabbed a maid and like at gunpoint and kind of forced her like into the... Uh, so she was what, coming into do? work uh-huh. at, at the place yeah, that yeah, he yeah. was at and she saw him unloading the uh, truck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he took her at gunpoint and uh, threw a few bags of the money into her car and uh, went to take off with her, but she managed to get away. Yeah, yeah, she uh, jumped out or something like that. Right, and uh, so he took off, and uh, they ultimately found her car a few miles away, and there was a a note in, left in the car with him apologizing for scaring her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he had taken off with the money. Sure, yeah. And uh, he basically disappeared from there. Yeah, he, uh, and he evaded capture for about 15 months. Yeah. He uh yeah, he was gone for uh yeah, a little over a year. I think it was 15 months, that's right. And uh along that time he basically bounced around the country. He was in New York, Chicago, Miami, a few different places along the way. Uh at one point he sent money back to he had worked at the San Francisco SPCA mm-hmm. uh in animal control. And at one point, he sent like twenty thousand oh, dollars to yeah, the I animal control. That. Yeah, uh, you know, saying to put the money towards the animals or whatever. And at one point, he sent money back to his partner in the private police that he had worked with uh, to uh, you know right wrongs there or whatever. Yeah. But he basically was bouncing around the country. He settled in New York for a while, and at that point, it's estimated he was spending about four thousand dollars a day just living the life he yeah he did not try to uh stay <laughs> subtle and under the radar right uh he took on a different uh name and everything but he was out in the club spending tons of money and whenever he was like approached by somebody who needed money for this that and the other he on several occasions gave people ten thousand dollars twenty thousand dollars for you know whatever it was that they needed so uh, despite the fact that he was a thief, uh, he was very generous with his stolen money. Yeah, why not? It's worth noting that this money was, you know, belonged to uh, a bank, but was uh, insured through Brinks, mm-hmm. who insured it through Lloyd's of London, mm-hmm. who uh, is famous for insuring uh, very high-class things, uh, insuring royalty, in fact. Right, uh, right. 
there was a big thing in wrestling uh, in like the late 80s and early 90s where all the wrestlers had Lloyds of London policies on their bodies, basically. <laughs> so what would happen is if they would get injured and they weren't able to wrestle, they would draw on these huge insurance sums. Yeah. And some of them uh, exploited that. They would get a little bit hurt and then act like they couldn't wrestle anymore and then like make more money than they would have wrestling. That's awesome. Off of these uh, things. I love crime. <laughs> Uh, but anyhow, uh, Lloyd, Lloyd's of London was very upset about this, and uh, they and Brinks both put up money, like reward money, to turn in George Boss because yeah. uh, you know they needed to get a hold of him and hold him accountable. Yeah. So while George was bouncing around the country, doesn't seem right to hold a man accountable for such a crime. <laughs> uh, as he was bouncing around the country in New York when he was. Uh, Living in the gay club scene there, he met uh, John Christopher, mm -hmm. who had a career making porn films, uh, pretty much all straight films, uh, but yeah, straight I'd hardcore seen that, films. Yeah, when I was looking at his uh, filmography, they were mostly straight. He was a gay man who made straight porn, um, sure. and he had been doing that for a while, but uh, when George met him at a nightclub and talked to him a bit, George offered to finance a gay porn film for him. At first, Christopher said that, you know, he didn't believe him because he'd been approached by all kinds of people to make offers like that. But he went back to George's hotel room and saw just stacks and stacks of cash everywhere. He realized that, you know, he really had money. So they uh, went ahead and pulled the trigger on this. Yes. So uh, this whole situation was pretty wild. Mm -hmm. Um this film notably stars Scorpio as uh, Octavius. From uh, WWE. Uh, yes, Too Cold Scorpio. <laughs> yes. No. Uh, I like this one better. He didn't try to kill anyone in North Korea. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, was in one of the lead roles as Octavius. Uh, I believe this was his first uh, feature film role. Uh, and he would end up having a bit of a career following this. Sure. Um, he had already worked as a dancer and a model, mm -hmm. uh, an erotic dancer and a model. Um, also, George Payne is in this one, who yes. we have seen in straight films. Yeah, we've seen. He's been in a couple different ones. Uh, do you remember which ones? He was in Corruption. Okay, he wasn't in Corruption. He was uh, Alan, who uh, Jamie Gillis was chasing down and turned into the Joker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Is he in, was uh, he in Driller? He was one of, yeah, he was, he was in the Driller's the, Castle. Yeah, he was one of, in the Driller Dungeon, yeah. He was also in Public Affairs okay. as, uh, uh, what's her name, Annette Haven's friend at okay, the newspaper right. or whatever yeah, yeah, she's yeah, working yeah. for. The news, not the newspaper. Yeah. Okay. Um, so early in his career, he was primarily in these gay films, mm -hmm. but he later transitioned to mostly doing straight films. Right. Um, he himself contends that he was not gay. Okay. Uh, he was, as they say, gay for pay. Sure, sure. Uh, and because of that, when asked to do certain things, he would uh, complain and say that he wouldn't do it, but eventually would be talked into whatever it was he did. Oh my God. Don't be a, <laughs> don't be a just don't be a diva. <laughs> Jeez. Just... Uh, so we also have uh, Eric Ryan as the commander mm -hmm. in this. And uh, Fred Gormley as the Emperor. And uh, several other gentlemen in here. 
Yes, there is a woman on screen for like 20 seconds. I don't even she's remember. told to go away. <laughs> yes, I don't even remember her, but that's good. good. Uh, she yeah. was one of the commander's slaves. She Excellent. came and brought him food, and then she, he told her to go away. Oh, yes. Yeah, we don't need her around here. Uh, so the crew on these films were the people that had been working with John Christopher on stuff, and they were mostly straight and... Uh, mm-hmm. They were mostly professional here, but the key was that at a certain point they realized that George, the financier on this film, didn't really know what he was doing. And because of that, they purposely tried to drag out the production longer (laughs) because basically George was paying everybody in cash every day. So they realized that the longer that the shoot took, the more money they would get out of this. Yes. Uh, That's uh, great. Uh, meanwhile, they're they're shooting in upstate New York in the cold, wearing barely anything in these little Roman outfits, these yeah, tunics. They're great. Uh, and uh, it was a it was a very troubling shoot, uh, made more troubling by the amount of cocaine that George had with him. Uh-oh. Uh oh. <laughs> who uh, on the Rialto report they told a anecdote about how Scorpio was getting upset by the fact that George. Uh, kept coming to John Christopher with line changes that he wanted to do um, that everybody felt were really campy and silly and like yeah. made the film worse every time he wanted to make a change. And Scorpio was had enough with it. <laughs> but then George invited Scorpio into his car and they did a bunch of cocaine. And then Scorpio came out and he was happy. So, <laughs> but, he, needed, uh, he needed a bump. Apparently this was a... Uh, a Dracula sucks level of cocaine going that on. Sounds on the right. That's set. the f- film. Yeah, that's that was the film where uh, Bill Margold said there was a mountain of cocaine. Yeah, I'm gonna find a uh, cocaine mountain out of this molehill. Right. Um, looks great. I love it. You uh, just do some lines in the car, and he can do whatever rewrites he wants. So after being on the run for about 15 months, uh, George Bosk was caught. Um, he had returned to San Francisco looking for his uh, ex-boyfriend he was going to try to rekindle his relationship with. Um, he had been living the high life, but at the end of the day, he just missed his old boyfriend. So he had returned to town, and he started calling people that he knew trying to figure out where his boyfriend was, and he never could find him. But mm-hmm. after calling enough people enough times, somebody realized that there was a reward out for him. And turned his ass in. Well. <laughs> so, uh, apparently his boyfriend had moved to Houston and had left no sign, you know, behind and nobody knew where he was. So, right. Um, so he, just so he got scooped up and uh, he told the FBI that he had spent all the money other than what he had on him, which was like a hundred bucks or something like that. <laughs> right. Um, and ultimately... The only real asset that was left uh, was the Centurions of Rome. Yes, excellent. So, ultimately, Lloyds of London took hand-in-hand films to court to uh, potentially gain ownership of Centurions of Rome. Mm -hmm. But uh, as the story is told on the Rialto Report, the uh, person representing hand-in-hand films... (laughs) uh, ...passed out a bunch of still pictures from the film to everybody in court... Uh, of the most graphic and explicit things that they could find in the film. <laughs> and ultimately, Lloyds of London washed their hands of the situation. So, uh, 
that's uh, that's Centurions for you. That's a good legal defense. Uh, to uh, get off the hook is just to give everyone hardcore gay porn. <laughs> exactly. What a time. It says he originally pleaded not guilty and then came back with a guilty plea later. Mm-hmm. And his plea was accepted by federal prosecutor Robert Mueller. Uh, yes. Yes. Uh, recently, the star of everyone's favorite reality show. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so very interesting how everything kind of connects in that way. Yes. Uh, what um, a tangled web we weave. Yeah. Yes. I'm not going to finish your rhyme. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when next week we cover Adam and Eve. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Well, I'm going to go to break. All right, well, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll talk more about the film itself, Centurions of Rome. Everybody's favorite collection of insects. Yeah. They were um, played at my birthday. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Was it the song about birthdays? Yeah. But they didn't really do any songs. They just rolled around in a little dirt pit. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of rolling around in a dirt pit, let's talk a little bit about Centurions of Rome. Okay. Let's talk a little bit. Centurions of Rome has quite a few influences of, uh, at the time, modern uh, popular films. Yes. Uh, One in particular that I can't remember if it was, I believe it was George had wanted to emulate, was uh, Star Wars. Yeah. Which uh, became very clear in the very opening of the film. Yeah. It's not the sort of thing I expected. No, we get a Uranus Films Presents uh, mm-hmm. title card, and then we get a bunch of text flying through the stars, yellow yes. text. Yes. Um, it's not exactly in the style of Star Wars, but it's clearly imitating that. It's in the spirit of Star Wars, yes. that's for sure. <laughs> uh, uh, a long, long time ago, mm-hmm. much like Star Wars, Yes. a long, long time ago, somewhere outside of Rome... In a village not so far away, it's at this point that we see a wooded area, and uh, our first main character, Demetrius, that's yes. uh, George Payne's character. Oh, also, the cinematography is by uh, our boy, Larry Ravine. Uh, yes, who used his signature use of shadows here to really create a very textured frames here, although yeah. the, the uh, DVD release that we have, I think... Uh, does not play well with those shadows. No, it needs... I was really, like, at this point, I actually did attempt to, like, calibrate my TV, and now everything's green. Excellent. But, uh... <laughs> no, it's fine. I just I reset it, because I got scared. 
but uh, <laughs> I got it to where I could watch it. And like, so during the film, like, and I'll, I'll probably just kind of and more put that in my review. But uh, the film looks good mm-hmm. itself, but the transfer is uh, troublesome. Yeah, well, it's definitely not one that's gotten a a big fancy restoration for fairly obvious reasons, I suppose. I suppose, but um, um, yeah, it's one of those things where, generally speaking, I was able to make out what was happening. There was definitely a few shots of uh, butt sex that I could not see the butt sex. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but uh, otherwise, I could mostly make out what was going on, but there are definitely some shadowy scenes where it's mm-hmm. kind of difficult. Yeah, murky. Uh, I think it's because he seems committed to using like natural light in some of the scenes. Yeah. Um, which probably looks great on, like, a nice theater screen or something like that. Right. But uh, a little janky now. Yeah, nobody at the time was thinking about the lackluster lackluster DVDs of the late 90s, I would assume this is when it came out. They weren't thinking about that, and they weren't thinking about the people who would look at those DVDs 20 years later when they made the DVDs. (laughs) No one ever thinks about the future, and that's really the problem. Exactly. Yeah. but as we're about to learn, there is tomorrow, no tomorrow. Tomorrow is now. Exactly. Yes. So Demetrius is chopping wood, and uh, Octavius, played by Scorpio, approaches. Uh, these guys are buddies. Octavius approaches Demetrius, telling him that he works harder than a slave. And Demetrius says, there's dignity in hard work. But Octavius says, not in being a slave. Demetrius talks about how there shouldn't be slaves, and they go back and forth a bit, but Octavius explains that they can't pay their taxes. Demetrius is surprised by this. At this point, though, they chat a bit and decide that they should sleep before they do any more work. Yeah, a nap uh, in the field. Yeah, so they end up laying down in the field next to each other, and uh, Octavius asks Demetrius about being in war. Demetrius starts to recount the horror in descriptive language, uh, and after a minute or so of that, he says, well, let's not talk about that now. So uh, the two guys start to fall asleep, and I believe it's Scorpio, or uh, Octavius, Scorpio's character, yes, who uh, has a little fantasy here as he falls asleep. And uh, basically, the two guys are standing across from each other, naked in the dark. And uh, at first, they're in their loincloths, but uh, they undress and caress and twirl a bit. And then they 69 for a while. Uh, And this goes on for a while, and finally, they finish. Again, this is some of that shadowy cinematography. Yeah, so I can't really tell who's doing what necessarily, but one of them is really uh, giving some ball-licking. Yeah. Yeah, and it's good. Beautiful ball liquors. Of the ancient world. It's a documentary I'm working on (laughs) for uh, a history channel. So the gentlemen are awakened, but not by the sunlight, by Roman soldiers who have come by to be dicks. Yeah, exclusively. Uh, They ask about who lives there, and Octavius says that his uncle lives in the house there. But they accuse him of lying, and... uh, say that it's because they can't pay their taxes. So they decide to take Octavius with them, and they throw Demetrius a pouch, saying to fill it with silver before tomorrow, and that they'll be back to collect. Yes, and that they're going to fill their pouch with something besides rigid silver. 
Uh, yeah. They're, they're talking about the butthole. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed they are. Yes. So from there, we cut to Octavius bound in a little hut. This is where we get introduced to the commander, played by Eric Ryan. He's very excited by Octavius, talking about how Octavius has an angel's face, and he must have it. Yeah, he's very insistent upon getting that face. Yes, he is. So he starts to touch on Octavius, but Octavius pulls away, so the commander calls for his guards. He starts to make threats, saying that they can stretch him out over a mound of sand that's full of ants uh, that'll strip his bones in two hours. Yeah, it's pretty cool. But the commander says that he will be merciful instead and tells his guards to take Octavius's mouth. <laughs> so, so they do. So uh, one of the soldiers starts to fuck Octavius's mouth as the commander watches on and starts stroking. The other guard, the one that's not fucking Octavius's mouth, starts to blow the commander. They do this for a while. And eventually the guard that's fucking Octavius's mouth pulls out and finishes on Octavius's face and chest. The commander starts chanting angel face over and over again. <laughs> and then uh, strokes and finishes above Octavius's face. Mm-hmm. Octavius is in like chains at this point. I don't know. Was he always in chains? Uh, I'm not sure. But there's just a good close up of him in chains. Yes. It's very nice. It's good chain work there. The commander says, tomorrow, maybe that angel's face will change that devil's mind. (laughs) I don't really know what that means. It means tomorrow, the angel's face will change the devil's mind. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I I don't know. Who's the devil? Is he the devil? Yeah, I'm not sure. Maybe he's an angel's face with a devil's mind. Oh, fancy. Yeah. We cut to the commander asleep in the hut. We're later on that night, and we see Demetrius approaching the hut. He grabs Octavius, who says, Where did you come from? And Demetrius shushes him, because he's just going to wake everybody up all chatting in the same hut as the commander. Yeah, he's not smart. He's just pretty. Uh, He gives him the plan that Octavius is going to escape, and then uh, Demetrius is going to kill the commander, basically. So Octavius leaves the hut and starts to run away. Demetrius grabs a big rock and acts like he's going to smash the commander's head with it. But he ultimately can't bring himself to do it, and he leaves. Just as he's leaving, the commander wakes up and notices Octavius is gone. So he emerges from the hut and calls out to the guards and starts to chase after them. So we see Octavius running, and then we cut to Demetrius running. Of course, Octavius has a head start, so he's further away. Eventually, the guards catch up with Demetrius, and uh, we see him chained up with the commander and his guards. And uh, Octavius has gotten away. The commander is then circling around Demetrius, talking about how strong and how hard he is. Hell yeah. Uh, He's saying that slaves should be more pliable, but he could be trained to be more sensitive. He also says some stuff about he could be a breeder. Uh, Yes. It's a very perverse speech. Yeah, he says that... They need to make sure not to leave a mark so that he could be sold. Uh, That way he could help pay for the taxes that have gone unpaid. And yeah, he talks about how he might even be used to breed. So we go from there to the slave auction. Which is a basement. Uh, Yes. In the slave auction, we see a few various slaves get sold, and there's uh, some bidding wars. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see two get sold before Demetrius is brought up. A guy bids 300 drachma, 
and is told that he wins, but another voice, just as he's told he wins, chants up and says that uh, he bids a thousand. The guy who won at 300 drachma is upset and says that he knows the law, but the bidder who said a thousand says, I am the law, and it turns out it's the emperor. Oh, shit. Uh... I like the guy who doesn't have, like, a line. He's just kind of hanging out in, like, his, like, blue cloak and, like, blue harness. <laughs> uh, he's tight. I don't know him, but uh, I want to meet him. <laughs> uh, one of these days. I hope so. The Emperor has uh, Demetrius taken away, and then we cut to him chained up in his new slave quarters. Uh, in the room... There's a guy fucking a slave in the ass, and then we see another guy, a guy in a helmet, blowing a chained-up slave. From there, we cut back to Octavius, who's back home talking to his uncle. His uncle talks about how they own nothing now, and says that Demetrius' friendship is the only thing that they have, but Octavius says he hopes that Demetrius is still alive. Then we cut back to Demetrius, and he's not having a great time. Uh, he's talking to the other slaves and asks what he's supposed to do. They tell him that he needs to serve the emperor and to be his wife. <laughs> they ask if he's been trained to serve a man. Uh, he has not, and they say that they'll train him. So the guards take him off out of the area and chain him up in another room, and they call in Argus. They tell Argus that they want the slave to be trained properly. So Argus begins the training. Mm -hmm. He tells mm -hmm. Demetrius, Never cross your arms or legs in front of the emperor or a superior. He explains that he cannot touch the emperor without permission. He can only touch him when he takes him in his mouth. <laughs> yes. The overdubbing on Argus sounds like echoey compared to everyone else. Yes. Like he sounds like he has like a booming voice they like recorded it through like a cardboard tube yeah i assume yeah. that he's overdubbed by somebody else or something yeah uh i love it i love that he's just this bizarre booming man among the rest of them <laughs> it's not as bad as i think in uh adam and eve's like the overdubbing yeah uh he just really stands out because of that uh he get they get points from me <laughs> good uh, production decision George <laughs> Argus starts blowing Demetrius working his balls a bit with his hand uh, this goes on for a while and then Argus finishes him off with his hand but Argus tells him there's a more difficult position and so he unchains Demetrius and then pushes him onto the floor uh, chaining him down there Argus tells him if he fails to submit to the emperor they'll both die he chains him up on the floor, and then Argus starts to fuck him anally. Yes, it's cool. Uh, I like the sinister kind of droning music that's going on in the background, and I also uh -huh. kind of like, from the best I could tell the way it was lit, in kind of like, uh, that sort of like Bava fashion, where they have like two different tones mm -hmm. kind of clashing a bit. Uh, so I think this film has some pretty good like artistic directions to it. I really would love to see it done by like someone who like cares. Right? Yeah. After a while, Argus pulls out and comes on his ass. But Argus says, you must never move until the Emperor has completely finished. So then Argus pushes back in and keeps fucking. This goes on a bit longer, and then we get exterior shots of some buildings. And then we see Octavius walk into a building, and there he meets with the commander that he was uh, previously imprisoned by. Yes. 
He tells the commander that uh, the commander has kidnapped his friend, but the commander says that they simply collected the tax. Octavius tells the commander that he's come to pay the tax, so he holds out a pouch of silver, and mm-hmm. the guards throw Octavius onto a bed. Yeah, that's why I don't pay my taxes. <laughs> you try them. They'll just throw you in jail anyway. Uh, the commander says that the silver almost pays their tax, but not quite. So his friend will have to remain slave to the emperor. Octavius continues to plead with the commander, and the commander says that the gods couldn't take from the emperor what belongs to the emperor. Octavius calls the commander an animal, and the commander says yes, and Octavius too is an animal, and he'll show him what it's like to be an animal. I love it. So the commander gets on top of Octavius and undresses him. He says that... Octavius tomorrow will have to be taken to the Senate of Rome for what little training he'll need, but for now, he'll train him himself. So then the commander starts blowing Octavius, and it's at this point that I recognize the music playing. Yeah, I texted you about this, and you were (laughs) insistent it was tubular bells. It was going to be, because I said it was very, very familiar. Right, and when you said familiar, I thought about all the films that we've watched and the most familiar song that we've heard uh, repeatedly in our doings was Tubular Bells. But here it is, uh, no, it is the Imperial March from Star Wars. Yes. Uh, And in fact, uh, Star Wars is liberally robbed uh, throughout this film in various score pieces. But this is... Like, the one that stood out is obviously... yeah. (laughs) So the commander finishes off Octavius and starts kissing and looking all over his body. Then we see the commander start to fuck Octavius from behind, and he, after a while, he pulls out and comes on Octavius's ass. The commander tells Octavius, I'll do as I must for the Senate, but I'll also do what I can to keep you as my own. At this point, we cut to uh, the Senate. (laughs) Yes. Uh, and uh, this is what gets done in legislature, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we see three guys, a guy in a helmet being rimmed and stroking, while uh, there's another guy blowing the guy who is doing the rimming. Mm-hmm. This is uh, a room with a bunch of columns and some uh, drapes, and uh, there's also some grapes in the foreground of this shot. Yes. Uh, We see Octavius chained up, just kind of looking around the room as a bunch of depravity happens around him. In the Senate. Uh, Yes, in the Senate. Okay. I wasn't... They said they were going to the Senate, but they ended up here. I thought maybe something had happened along the way. I'm just assuming this is the Senate. (laughs) Okay. I mean, yeah, that seems fair. (laughs) This this makes sense to me (laughs) as far as how government works. Yeah. There's a lot going on here, too much to really keep track of, but we see a few couples engaging in oral and anal sex, uh, along with the trio I mentioned before going at it. This goes on for a while, and eventually we see some cum shots, and uh, then we get to some nighttime establishing shots. We see Octavius in a bed, and the commander approaches Octavius, saying it had to be done. He must be presented to the Senate as a slave, but Octavius tells him he's not a slave. Commander says, well, not by birth, and Octavius says, not by anything. The commander tells Octavius that he wants him, and he's wanted him ever since that night. He takes a moment, then he tells Octavius to get out of there. And then he stops him, he says, not yet. You can leave me if you want to, but not just yet. The commander asks if he can stay for one more night. 
If he does, he'll do what he can for his friend. The commander says, it's okay, I won't touch you. I just want you to be near. And Octavius says that he can touch him. The commander says that he loves him. Oh, it's the mustache and commander, like that movie. <laughs> mustache and commander? Yeah, you seen that one? It's got Russell Crowe. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's what I, I didn't... I'd forgotten his name was Octavius, so that's what I wrote. You know. (laughs) (laughs) So, we see Demetrius being woken up by the other slaves. The slaves tell him that it's time for him to be presented to the emperor. They say that he'll be scrubbed and washed. So, some slaves come to wash him. And as they start to touch him, they note that he's like a gladiator. Hard. Hard and strong. At this point, one of those slaves starts to blow Demetrius, and the other slave blows the blower. Yeah, it's a creature of ancient myth. (laughs) So Demetrius is finished off, and the other two slaves stroke and finish, and when they do, Demetrius kind of looks at them disgusted. We then see the emperor pacing and talking to himself about how powerful he is, and he talks about how the gods have been generous, he owes them a favor... And then he decides that his favor will be that he sacrifices a portrait of himself. The guards then bring in Demetrius, and the emperor is excited. He tells the guards to leave, and they protest that this slave hasn't been tested yet, and he could hurt him. But the emperor says that he's under the protection of the gods, so he's not concerned. The guards leave, and then the emperor asks why he's standing like that, and Demetrius is standing there with his arms and legs uh, open, as he had been told, and he explains that he was told not to cross his arms and legs as part of his training. The emperor asks, what training? He says, to be submissive to you. The emperor seems surprised by this, but he has Demetrius undress. The emperor tells Demetrius to oil himself and to caress his sex in the other hand. Yes, yes. So, uh... Demetrius oils himself and uh, starts to caress his dong. Yes, it's a beautiful shot. He just came like two minutes ago, though, so... Yeah, well, you know, it's all fine. He's young and vital. He's hard. And hard. Hard and strong. Like a gladiator. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So he can go multiple rounds, I think, and he'll be okay. I believe so. So, after a bit, the Emperor leans in and caresses Demetrius' hands, complimenting him on how strong they are. The Emperor undresses and asks Demetrius to come to bed. The Emperor continues to compliment Demetrius' body and asks who trained him, and Demetrius says Argus. The Emperor says that Argus is beautiful, but innately stupid. Demetrius is beautiful, but far from stupid. The Emperor says that he wants Demetrius to forget something he's holding on to for his life. Demetrius says, forget what? And the Emperor says, forget to be submissive. And then the Emperor starts to blow Demetrius. This goes on a bit, and then the Emperor demands, Take me! And then bends over. And so Demetrius starts to fuck him. Excellent. After a bit, the Emperor says, Take me with your hands! Your large, strong hands! The Emperor dips Demetrius' hand in a silver bowl of Crisco, it appears. Yes. And demands again, Take me with your hand! So... (laughs) Let me take a pause here uh-huh. to uh, another fun story about centurions of Rome. I feel like from what you said earlier, George Payne doesn't like this. <laughs> I 
So this was mostly shot in upstate New York. Uh, mm -hmm. There were a few shots done at Plato's Retreat, the famous sex club in New York, mm -hmm. uh, including, I believe, that Senate scene was shot there. But this was shot at a venue provided by a group called the FFA, okay. who uh, apparently... George thought stood for Future Farmers of America, mm -hmm. but it was not the Future Farmers of America. Who was it? It was the Fist Fuckers of America. Oh. And uh, they said that George could have a membership to the FFA, a lifetime membership, if he included a fisting scene in the film. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, and uh, so he agreed to. <laughs> um, George Payne was not a fan of this, but yeah, after yeah. some hemming and hawing, he went ahead and went along with it. Yeah. Um, you know, to be fair, he wasn't the one being fisted, but yeah. uh, he still wasn't quite the biggest fan of this idea, but he's a trooper. Yeah, it's up there on the screen. I mean, kind of. I think he gets like, I don't know if he ever get his full fist in there. The camera, he does eventually. I feel like I've like maxed four fingers, maybe like one of these, like a cone of power. <laughs> um, but I don't know. It was, so, it was all kind of at the bottom of the screen, and there's also some like weird distortion kind of stuff like up at the tops and the bottom of the screens for me, at least a little bit. Demetrius starts to work his fingers in a bit, but as he's doing this, he grabs a knife and pulls it up as if he's going to stab the Emperor, but the Emperor laughs and asks if Demetrius feels responsibility for his friend Octavius' life. And, he uh, still has one hand inside of him while he's going to stab him. <laughs> At least a few fingers. Uh, That's, that seems rude. So Demetrius is upset at what the Emperor says and ends up stabbing the knife into the bed. The Emperor compliments his intelligence again and then demands again that he takes him with his hand. So uh, I believe he does get his fist in, at least in the cone shape. He gets it in there, but... Uh, after a bit, he pulls out, and uh, both men stroke to come and finish. Yes. Uh, Demetrius comes first and works the Emperor's ass a bit more. I'm not sure that we saw the Emperor come here. I'm not certain. I, but, think, uh, I think there were grapes in the scene, and I was thinking <laughs> that he should take those grapes and stuff them up the Emperor's butt. But they didn't do that. Well, you know, they can't all be winners. Yeah, maybe they were going to do that, and that's where uh, George Payne drew the line. <laughs> uh, we cut to the commander and Octavius in a bed together. It's at this point that the single female uh, on-screen actress appears, approaching with food on a tray. Uh, she sits it down and is told, you may go. And that was 100% of the film's estrogen. Yep. Off it goes. <laughs> <laughs> we cut back to Demetrius from here, and he's being whipped by guards as the Emperor laughs and says to whip him harder. We cut back to the commander and Octavius, and the commander says he's not convinced that Octavius is happy. And the commander says that Demetrius is the emperor's slave, so if they tried anything, they'd all be killed. The commander asks if Octavius would risk his own life to save his friend, and Octavius says yes. The commander asks Octavius if Octavius would risk the commander's life to save his friend, and Octavius doesn't answer. But then the commander says he would risk his life just to have Octavius. Octavius then asks the commander if there's a chance that this would work, and the commander says no, but they'll try anyway. So then we see Octavius and the commander sneaking into the emperor's room and untying Demetrius. 
Uh, Octavius and Demetrius then run away, and we see them sprinting out of the building, and the commander seems to be waiting in the room for the two to leave. It's at that point that the emperor walks back into his room and asks if the commander likes his bedroom. Then asks him where his Greek prize is, referring to Demetrius. Yes, he's Greek. He's not Roman. Uh, He tells the commander that if Demetrius isn't found by the morning, he can find a new muscular prize to uh, fill his whims, seemingly referring to the commander himself. He tells the commander to go home for now. So then we see the commander in his room. He takes off his helmet and gets on his bed. Uh, Then we see Demetrius and Octavius riding on a horse together. Cut back to the commander, who's approached by Argus and two guards, who present him with a scroll. The commander looks at the scroll and says that it can't be real, but Argus says that it's the Emperor's seal, and so they take the commander away. Indeed they do. So we see Octavius and Demetrius in front of a wall talking to each other. Octavius says that he loves Demetrius and had to save him, but another man loved him and risked his life for him. Demetrius asks if Octavius can forget him, uh, the man that loved him. Octavius says he can't forget him, but he does love Demetrius. We then see the commander being chained up. He tells the guards that he'll have them killed for this. The emperor approaches and removes the commander's loincloth, saying he won't need this. He prefers his meat raw. I don't know what that means. I don't know. Uh, He talks about how the commander will learn of the emperor's particular tastes. Maybe he's going to whip his dick until it's raw. Well, the emperor stands behind the commander. Then we see him shifting his weight around, and he says, Oh, only three fingers. You have much to learn. So I believe the emperor has reached into the commander's ass. Yes, he's going to get a whole hand up there if he can. After he says, you have much to learn, the commander screams out, and then we get a freeze frame of the commander screaming out, and the emperor with a smiling grimace behind him. And then we get our credits, and that was the Centurions of Rome. Yes, it was. Wow, never stick your neck out for somebody. Uh, Yes, you can't trust them. Yeah, if you do, you're going to get fisted. Uh, yes, that's the moral of the story. Never do anything for anybody or you'll be fisted. Yeah, one good turn deserves a fisting. Yes, it does. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to talk about uh, the Centurions of Rome in our raincoat review. Our rainbow review, in fact. Oh, yes. Very good. Good yes. save. Yes, we'll be back. Pure filth. Pure filth. Spaceballs. Yes, pure filth. Um, Grated Parmesan cheese. These are just a few things on the table before me. Uh, Okay, so... uh, (laughs) (laughs) There's a little poem that we wrote together. Yes. uh, (laughs) It's called Pure Filth. Yes, it's beautiful. Uh, 
Sure is filthy. It is, and uh, you know what else was filthy was the Centurions of Rome. So, Jeremy, why don't you take lead in our rainbow review and talk a little bit about Centurions of Rome? I think I will. This was a film that I didn't really know much of going in. Uh, Certainly the backstory adds some interesting uh, texture to the overall film. Yeah. But I think the film in and of itself kind of stands on its own. It's a, I don't really want to call it a historical picture. It's more like a sword and sandal picture, but the swords are dicks, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, it's got some of like, it's like a very fantastical idea of like Rome and like, it's just a very general vague concept of those, you know, like ideas. Right. Um, it honestly feels more like a, like a He-Man Conan the Barbarian thing. Right. Or just a bunch of sexually sweaty men just rolling around with each other it's a uh, everything that was beneath the surface in he-man is fully erupted forth fully engorged yes hard strong like a gladiator yes <laughs> <laughs> um and as i was kind of saying earlier that the film doesn't look great necessarily because of the carelessness of the uh dvd company right but uh, you can tell like that some some money went into it, like making the film look good. Like Larry Ravine, uh, I think does a really good job as far as like the general photography and the cinematography of the film. Like oh, there's a lot of good framing, right? Uh, his usual, you know, kind of use of shadows, things like that that are rendered just almost unviewable at times. <laughs> uh, but so I want to say I want to appreciate the film for what it is instead of dogging just the quality of it, like because uh, obviously it looks good, it looks bad, but it's well made. There right. we go. Love the unlicensed use of John Williams. Yeah. Uh, I like to think maybe George just passed a couple notes his way, maybe in a bar in one <laughs> of the, like Studio Fifty Four. I don't know. This is maybe a little later than Studio Fifty Four's height, but. I like to think he got permission. Right. Or maybe like so many other things in his life, he just he just took what he wanted. Yeah. Which was just <laughs> elements of Star Wars. Right. I think a lot of the sex is good. Even George Payne's reluctant fisting scene is pretty solid. <laughs> uh, I think most of the people have pretty decent chemistry. Again, there's a lot of like, just uh, like in Boys in the Sand, just a, like a lot of worship of like the male body. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially, like, in an idealized form, like, people kind of envision ancient Rome to have been. Right, Because right. everyone's, like, muscular and glistening and, you know, all that good stuff. They have big mustaches that Romans perhaps had. <laughs> <laughs> Romans from upstate New York. Yes. All around, I just uh, I very much enjoyed the film. All right. It was a uh, lighthearted fantasy epic romp through the ancient <laughs> world. Uh, men were fisted, women were kept in their place and told to go. Uh, for me, four star film. All right. All right. Uh, turn it back over to boss. Now. I definitely like the way this film was put together and I appreciate the amount of effort that went into it. Um, like you said, Larry Ravine seems to have done a great job shooting it. It's worth noting that, 
when doing the edit of the film, I believe they said on the Rialto report, Carter Stevens had to edit it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said it was a nightmare to edit together because of the amount of cocaine that everybody was doing. All of the performances were mm-hmm. pretty rough and, uh, <laughs> There was just tons and tons of footage shot, and he was trying to put everything together and make yeah. it convincing, but uh, it was a bit difficult. Uh, that said, the final version doesn't really give you the feeling that it's a disaster or anything no, like it, that. No, it's pretty competent. The, like, yeah. It's a uh, nice, like uh, kind of like a little genre film yeah. that uh, works out pretty well in the gay setting. Right. I think for me... My difficulty with the film is because I'm not into watching dudes having sex, I found myself a bit bored with it along the way. Sure. So that makes it hard for me to really, really get into it. You're untrustworthy. Uh, (laughs) You're you're unreliable. Uh, Yes, I'm unreliable. Um, Old unreliable is what we call you. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, I mean, overall, I think that the, I mean, for me, the story behind it was really, really fascinating. Yeah, definitely. And the film itself, I'm happy to have watched, but overall, I could not watch it again and be fine. Sure. I would give it overall three stars. Sure. I could see that. Definitely. Uh, if you weren't like a person, like a kid who felt a little weird when you watched He-Man, <laughs> uh, as like a you know, as like a child, then yeah, you definitely say it might not have the same impact, you know. Yeah, well, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. But uh, uh, this is this is still a, a fun process of going through these films because I feel as a student of exploitation and pornographic cinema, it's very interesting to go through these and expose myself to various uh, different types of films. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, I'm happy to have watched. Expose yourself. Here I come. No. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, this was week two of the Rainbow Report. We got three more weeks left. Uh, we'll be back next week with another film, which I might have already spoiled. Yeah. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Raincoat Report. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. And when you're out at the slave auction making bids on your next little beefcake that you're going to own, don't forget your raincoat. (laughs) I am a great man of very special interests, Commander, and in good time you'll come to understand just how special these interests are. Uh, Oh, only three fingers, Commander? You have much to learn about. Ah!